0: Next week, um, there are some things going on in in Antioch, and so Barnabas picks up and leaves and goes to a town called Tarsus to find a guy named Saul. We're familiar with this Saul, right? We know this guy; we've heard of him before. And so, what I want to do tonight is um, kind of take a step aside from our track that we've been following on in Acts, and for us to really look at this Saul, Paul guy, and to get a little bit of background on him. Um, so and so that when we get to when we get to Tarsus next week, that as soon as we hear that word, that our minds are kind of filled with information, uh, kind of giving us a picture. Maybe we can see, think about, smell what what Tarsus would have been like. So, um, so to start out tonight in Acts chapter twenty one and twenty two, I'm going to be jumping around a lot of places. So I'm going to I'm going to note um, some things up on the slides. I have given you my entire manuscript pretty much for tonight. Um, because we're gonna move pretty fast and so I filled in all the blanks for you that's done but I need your help though just because the blanks are filled doesn't mean that that we that we go to sleep okay so we're gonna I'll I'll teach fast if you listen fast how about that okay so starting out tonight in Acts 21 and 22 Paul identifies himself in three different ways he identifies himself in three different ways in in, uh, in chapter 21 verses 37 through 40 he identifies himself as a citizen of Tarsus a city called Tarsus next in chapter 22 verses one through five he identifies himself as a Jew and then third in chapter 22 verses 22 through 29 he identifies himself as a Roman citizen all right so each one of these each one of these identities each one of these kind of facets of Paul's identity really tell us a and they were meant, as he's telling them these things, it's meant to, to, to convey a lot of information in a short space, in a short amount of words. And so what I want to do for you tonight, just for tonight, let's, let's talk about Paul as a citizen of Tarsus. And I want to do that for three reasons. First, specific, it's going to benefit us in really in two ways. First, it's going to, it's going to be specifically uh, in the book of Acts. In Acts, specifically, soon in the book of Acts, we're going to get front row seats. And we'll get to watch as, as Paul's life and his missionary journeys unfold. This is, uh, all, of, all of Acts is building toward this, where we've seen uh, that, that, that outline that Jesus gave us in Acts 1-8 come through to fruition. Where, like, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and what else? Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And so uh, we're fixing to kick into into the next year and see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Um, So with that then, the more that we can understand about who Paul is and what the context in which he's living and ministering, the more that we can really put ourselves in this situation and we can understand maybe some things about the text that we wouldn't otherwise. So, first of all, it's going to benefit us specifically in Acts. Second, and here's my, my another thing I it for you is that it benefits us generally with the epistles. What's another word for epistle? Anybody know? The letters. That's right. The New Testament letters. Right? Paul wrote how many of the, of the, the well, let's, let's back up. How many, how many books in the New Testament? 27. 27. 27 books total. Right? And then, Bob, how many of them did Paul write? 13. That's right. So we have 13, he wrote 13 out of these 27 letters. The more that we can understand the author, the more we can understand about him and where he's coming from, then the more that we can understand each one of those letters, right? And so I, my hope is that specifically here as we study Acts, and then generally as you continue to study through the epistles on your own time, um, and through whatever uh, sermon series that may come in the future. My, my hope is that this benefits you, that this helps you to see Paul more in 3D, right? Um, not just as words on a page, but as something that really happened and what it was like to be there and to see it. All right. So, first of all, let's talk about Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a very large very old city in what is now known as the nation of Turkey. Go ahead and bring up that next slide there. Let's see. There we go. So thank you, Google, for providing us with a map for tonight. He's been talking about- I know. Rich has been asking me, when are we going to get the maps, man? When are we going to get the maps? Well, there it is. You know, it's really easy to see everything, right? That red dot way over to the right side, that's, that's Tarsus. Okay? And if you might, you might even notice, way down in the bottom right-hand corner, that's Israel. Okay, uh, let's see. Go ahead and go to the next one, Cody. So here's, here's what the, the, Roman, the Roman Empire would have largely looked like in, in the time of Paul. So you can see there uh, Ephesus, Colossae, and then the province of Galatia, Tarsus, right? Tarsus and then Antioch. We've been talking about Antioch. And then down toward the bottom, you see Damascus and Jerusalem, all right? Um, so Turkey, or Turkey is the nation where, where we would find Tarsus today, the the city still stands. Modern Tarsus is built upon the ruins of old Tarsus. So during the days of the Roman, actually before then, sorry, it's a very old city and we actually see it mentioned in Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 verses 4 through 5. And then later on during the days of the Roman Empire, Tarsus was the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia. Two reasons why it probably would have been a a good capital uh, first of all, it was very close to the Mediterranean Sea, and it was also along a very popular trade route for caravans carrying goods from Asia to Rome. Now, when I say Asia, I'm not talking about the continent of Asia, I'm talking about the Roman province of Asia. And I think, there we go, you can see, ooh, that is, that is tough. Man, can I can I make this happen? Is this possible? Here we go. yeah hi techie techie right there can you see that so yeah the very easy to see marker that I just wrote with this, the uh, the circled portion let's try that again this is getting recorded by the way isn't that fantastic this is all this time of me being it's like I'm texting somebody yeah exactly yeah it's like I'm, I'm a nerd right there that's Asia right there. The, that's the Roman province of Asia. Uh, Roman province of Asia. Thank you. This is, this is going to show up even better on video now. Woo! All right. Here we go. Um, so Roman, the Roman province of Asia, you would actually know this place because it has places like Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, churches that are, that are mentioned in, in the New Testament book of? Revelation. Revelation, yeah. So there are churches that, have, that are... Uh, that are, that are specifically things that Jesus addresses with these churches. So they're all there in the Roman province of Asia. So as you can see right there in the middle is Cilicia. And so Cilicia is kind of the gateway from Asia back to Rome. And so it's close to the Mediterranean Sea. It's along this major trade route. So it was, it was a busy place. It was a very diverse place. And it would have been a very lucrative place. A lot of money would have been changing hands in this place, so it was an easy it was an easy candidate for the capital of the region. Also, it's surrounded. You, I think there's a couple of old old pictures of of the town. Those are the Taurus Mountains. It was surrounded on almost all sides by these mountains, so it was very easily defended because not many people wanted to go hiking over those mountains. So it was a great it was a great uh, place for for being a capital of the region. Um, over its many thousand years of history, it was known as uh, the, the first meeting place of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. That's right. They met here at Tarsus. And then, of course, it's also the birthplace of the Apostle Paul. So, it's a, it's a well-known place. And um, so now, let's talk about how, not only about Tarsus, but let's, let's get back to our context, right? How would Tarsus have had an impact on Paul? What kind of impact, what kind of influence would it would have had? So, in 333 BC, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, some of you may know him, defeated the Persians, the modern Iran, and conquered this whole territory. This whole territory now belonged to Alexander. And this brought up this massive spread of Greek language and culture called Hellenism. Hellenism. The Greek language spread across that part of the world and became the common language. One of the interesting things about spending some time in, in Peru uh, a couple years ago was that, um, that you were all these different tribal languages. Uh, the Quechua people, the descendants of the Inca, and so on and so forth. There were all these other languages, but then there was one language that everybody really did business in. If you were going to town to sell things or to buy things, you always spoke Spanish, right? It was the common trade language. In the same way, even though the, even though the Romans had come, and had conquered much of this, this region later on, Greek, koine, normal, common Greek, was still the trade language of the whole region. And so, all because of this guy named Alexander. Um, so, along with that language came culture. Tarsus was one of many cities built in a Greek style. So, Tarsus had institutions, Greek institutions everywhere. Gyms, gymnasiums, bathhouses, theaters, marketplaces, Greek architecture everywhere. Hidden, just filled to the brim with symbolism in its architecture as well. So, and I I love this, and I put this in parentheses in your notes. Coincidentally, right? It just so happens then that everywhere that Paul would eventually live preach and minister would be under the influence of Greek culture such a great expanse in the, all those missionary journeys yet there's one there's so many of the towns are laid out in the same way so many of the people speak the same language if you it, for him to be able to do trade to be as a tent maker to be able to support himself he could talk to pretty much anybody in Greek isn't that in, isn't that amazing that it, just staggers to me. So, so first, we talked about uh, in how life in Tarsus influenced Paul. First, we talked about Greek influence. Secondly, let's talk about something called the diaspora life. Diaspora means what? Anybody know? No. It means scattered. It means scattering. So the Bible doesn't really say much about Paul's family except that he was raised under strict Judaism. We can see that in places like Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5, where he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means not just that he was, was really excelling, but that his family as well. His family uh, was very devout in their Judaism. So living in Tarsus, that would mean that there's some, there's some sort of added qualifier onto the family. Not only are they Jews, but they're what we call diaspora Jews, meaning Jews who lived outside the Holy Land. Diaspora Jews lived in every major city in Asia, again, Roman province of Asia, not the, not the continent, um, and in Syria and Cilicia. Normally in a Jewish quarters, there was like kind of like, like you'd have like maybe Chinatown or Koreatown or different places like that. Um, there would be a Jewish quarter in the town, in the city. Um, and where all the Jewish people would live there together, they'd, there'd be Jewish markets and they would be, um, they'd have a synagogue there and so they would, it was a way for them to, to be able to keep some semblance of the life and culture they had before right um, so with that, the, the synagogue would be the center of the community because their, their identity, again what, what's the Jews' identity as a people? What makes them a people? They're the people that God has spoken to right? right? That's what binds them together. So, with that, religious instruction took place regularly. Paul would have read scripture and would have uh, and the prayers of worship every Saturday, every Sabbath day. He would have been he would have been expected to learn large portions of the Bible, uh, or at least of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This instruction was the responsibility of the family. It was the responsibility of the parents to educate their children and to teach them to memorize almost the entire first five books of the Bible. Let's think about that, folks. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized by heart. Isn't that interesting? Woo, amazing. And yet that was the common thing. It wasn't extreme, it was just... That's what you did. That's what, our fa- that's what your family did. That's what your community did. All right? This instruction would have been the responsibility of family. And so we, we also know from this that Paul very well probably learned the Greek New Testament. The Septuagint. Or the, New, the Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament. Uh, the first, really, the first translation of the, of the Old Testament. Which would have been done sometime in the later Old Testament period. So with that, Paul is memorizing scripture. He is, he is very familiar, not only with the Old Testament in Hebrew, but with it in Greek. And so I th- think about this, friends. This would, have been, this would have enabled him, encouraged him, and would have equipped him to minister to both Jews and Gentiles who lived outside the Holy Land. Where is most of his ministry going to take place? Outside of the Holy Land, whose primary language was Koine, common Greek. And also as a deist for a Jew, he would have encountered Gentiles all the time, right? Going around, uh, going around the city, it, anytime it took him outside of the Jewish quarter. But he also would have experienced probably two kinds of Gentiles there in the synagogue. There in the synagogue. First, he would have experienced proselytes, proselytes. What are proselytes? They're converts to Judaism, converts to Judaism who have been circumcised and they, who have, they have agreed to follow the law. They, have, they are f- as close as you can get to being a Jew, if you're not born a Jew. They're, so proselytes, and then secondly, God-fearers. Huh, that sounds familiar. God-fearers, gent- Gentiles who attended the synagogue, believed in one God, but had not yet been circumcised. Anybody, without looking at the notes, anybody remember an example of a God-fearer? Oh, well. Cornelius. Cornelius, that's right. There we go. Absolutely. Probably also the, the eunuch from, from, Acts, from Acts chapter 8. All right? So, there we go. So, Gentiles who attended the synagogue believed in one God but had not yet been circumcised. So, again, we see, so we, we're looking and we can see, um, we see Greek influence, the diaspora life, public education. The Greeks were known for their public education. All boys between the age of 6 and 14 were sent to elementary schools. They would have been trained in basic skills in reading, writing, math, music, etc. And through Greek public education, the, the Lord was equipping Paul to later write and preach meaningfully and effectively throughout his ministry. No matter where he went, this, this was, the Lord was stamping him even now. In ways that he wouldn't, he could he could even hardly imagine. So, um, I don't like doing subpoints of subpoints, and so I've tried to keep this as flat of a structure as possible, if that makes sense. So, uh, kind of this is kind of under public education. But what are some things that he would have learned in public education? Things that would be really important to him in ministry. First of all, Greek poetry. Greek poetry. In Paul's public education, he would have uh, the writings of the Greek poets were emphasized. Not just, not just mentioned over here, over in a corner, but they would have been at the forefront. Because poetry and philosophy, and they were all very much intertwined. And so, um, God was using this education to equip Paul to later quote Greek poets to help make his points. Some examples. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. In this text, he's speaking to the philosophers in Athens. We're going to come back to this at the end tonight. Uh, but the, he quotes a, a third century poet. A 3rd century B.C. Uh, Stoic poet named Eratus. Eratus, and he says this, For we are also his children. This is right after he says, In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Right? He's preaching the gospel there. So this little fun fact here. eratus was a local poet who lived in the town of Soli, which was really not far from Tarsus. Paul would have been very familiar with this, with this guy's work. Next, 1 Corinthians 15.33. Paul quotes a guy named Menander guy named Menander. Menander. And you may have heard this phrase before. Bad company corrupts good character. Paul, Paul didn't originate this. He's quoting from a, from a Greek poet named Menander. And so, and, and almost kind of like we would, we would quote song lyrics now uh, to help illustrate a point. Right? And so, he's using that there. Um, then in Titus chapter 1 verse 12, Paul quoted a guy named Epimenides a Cretan religious teacher from around 500 BC. Epimenides described the bad character of Cretans. You ever wonder why the, why the, the term Cretan is used to, dis, to describe somebody that's, that's, a he, that's a heathen, essentially? right? Well, it's because it's somebody who lived on the island of Crete, which is right there in the middle of the Mediterranean. So, so this is, this is uh, Paul quotes him here where he says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Man, what a reputation, right? Now, and again, who is he saying this to? He's saying this to Titus. Titus is there on Crete, on this island, uh, as, a, as a pastor. And so he's, he's trying to, to start, he's trying to, uh, to build up a church and to train up leaders and send them out. And so Paul's teaching him how to do that. So we see Greek, ph- uh, Greek poetry. Next, let's talk about Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy, specifically, Stoic. Greek philosophy. I, if you're if you feel like you're like we're getting kind of deep here, hold on. This is this is where like, I feel like it really starts we start understanding kind of the, the connection between what he's learning in this in these schools and what you're seeing in preaching. I love this. Greek Stoic philosophy. Paul understood the philosophies of his day really well. He wasn't he didn't bury his head in the sand, he didn't stay off in a corner, he was very aware. He would have known what was going on in the world around him. And also, not only what was going on, but the ideas that were floating around in the world around him. He was very well versed in, in the, the ideas of the day, uh, specifically in the idea of Stoicism. Sto- uh, Tarsus was a major center of Stoic education and was even ruled for a time by Stoics during Paul's childhood. Uh, it was not the, the highly educated ivory tower philosophy, it was kind of the street level philosophy. It was the, the everyman philosophy. It was the practical philosophy of the day. Um, and so let's talk real quickly. What is that? When, I, when someone says, oh, they're, they're a real stoic, what does that mean? So four things, four basic beliefs of stoicism. And again, I want to be careful here. I can't sum up an entire belief system in four statements. So this is the best that I can do and kind of keep us getting out on time tonight. How about that? So, four main beliefs for Stoicism. First, they believed that that being detached from the world, completely detached from the world, and self-sufficient was the highest value. Completely separate from the world. To be able to support themselves in every way. No need for any ties with anything else around them. Secondly, they, they believed that the world was permeated by a rational spirit. Kind of this force. Right, that kind of kept everything in balance. So with that also, not only was it something that was around them, but it was in them. They believed that every human possesses the spirit. Therefore, and I want you to hear this, it's kind of like a pantheism where everything is God. Everyone is God. Everyone has this divine spark inside them. Right. So essentially, instead of, we're, we're as Christians, we would say that everyone is made in the image of the creator. Everyone is made in the image of God doesn't mean that everyone is God, right? And at the same time, in trusting in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That doesn't make us deity, though, right? But they would believe you just have to harness that, uh, that inner spark, that inner divine spark. And you can, you can achieve, you can do, right? Does that sound familiar? Well, turn on American Idol. And you're going to hear it, right? You're going to hear it pretty much everywhere. It's not, I pick on American Idol, but you hear it everywhere, Right? You, gotta, you know, everyone's basically good. You've got that that spark. You've know, you got to find your true self. Part of that comes from Stoicism. From several religions. It's, there's nothing new under the sun. Amen? So everyone gets to participate in divinity if they're Stoic. And also, therefore, kind of everything... Together, What's the takeaway from Stoicism? They emphasize living in harmony with nature and with fellow human beings. Can, can I, and this is not in the notes, but I kind of just submit. This is, I feel like this is kind of a, a meeting of rational um, Greek thought with uh, Eastern pantheism. Eastern Buddhism and Hinduism. Kind of thing where everything, this is kind of those things. And you're going to start seeing this when you hear people throw around things like um, Gnosticism. And like this kind of stuff gets thrown around a lot. Um, And so we have to be on the lookout. We have to know what we believe and why. Um, so, So again, but that doesn't mean, at the same time, that doesn't mean... That we that we can just we we reject everything about Stoicism. Stoicism has some some elements to it that are really positive, and that could be could be captured and used as as a bridge for the gospel. So let's talk about that. I think I just put this entire paragraph in here because I really want you to see this Stoic themes as tools for the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not saying we changed the gospel. Let's talk about it. Paul used stoic themes throughout his writing and speaking. However, we need to consider the role they played, right? Paul used uh, stoic themes throughout his writings, throughout his talking about the gospel. But we need to understand their role. It's okay to use things from the world as long as they have the right role. Amen? Amen. So, they did not make or change the content of Paul's gospel. But by God's grace, they were tools to help him clearly communicate the gospel within, uh, with his, within, his, culture, within his audience's culture. If that makes sense. So because of this, well, let me, let me go back. They didn't make or change the content of Paul's gospel. But by God's grace, they were tools to help him clearly communicate the gospel in his audience's culture. Okay? In the same way that Jesus came and he spoke in Hebrew. He spoke in Aramaic because it was the language of the culture of his of his audience. He spoke to us in a way that we could understand. He revealed himself to us and so when we proclaim the gospel we are taking what is foreign and what is strange and we're proclaiming it in the language of the culture around us so that what really is foreign the gospel what really is strange for us suddenly becomes strangely familiar. doesn't mean that we can convince someone of the gospel with our words, but we can, here's what we can do, friends. We can take any unnecessary offense out of proclaiming the gospel, right? We're not, like uh, Pastor Cody said a couple weeks ago, we're not preaching culture. We're preaching the gospel, but we're using cultural language through which to proclaim the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. So, and so with this, and this is where it gets really fun, to me, this is, and you get to see how nerdy your associate pastor is. Because of this, Paul could use Stoic themes in, in a way, and many times, the Stoics around him would agree with. They would, they'd be listening, oh, this guy knows what we're talking about. He, that makes sense. I understand what he's saying. And then he can turn and then use Stoic themes in a way that would absolutely terrify them absolutely mystify them, horrify them. And yet all of this would be aimed at what? The greater progress of the gospel. He's not, he's not trying to win an argument. He's not trying to convince people that he's right and that they're wrong, that he's smart and that they're stupid. He's trying to clearly communicate the gospel and that, and then as he does that, that the Lord is working on their hearts. So, let's talk about points of agreement with Stoicism. And through this, I want us to kind of see through the way that Paul is interacting with the culture and how that can, how maybe this can help inform the way that we look at the culture around us. Um, so, first of all, in Romans 1, 19 through 20, Paul is using cultural language here. He says that God is clearly seen in his creation. I know a lot of times we look at the, the epistles and, and places where like Peter or people like Paul are preaching throughout the, the Bible. And we just think of it as just words, right? Just directly, the, you know, the, the word of God, and it, and it is. But it's the word of God conveyed through cultural language. And I, I love this. So, God, he says that God is clearly seen in creation. Stoics would have agreed with this because they believed in a divine design that pervades uh, all of nature. Isn't that interesting? So, he's, he's finding places where they agree. You know, you say this, well, we agree with this too. This is what the, the gospel says. This is what the Bible says. Secondly, he says in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul referred to those who, quote, do by nature things required by the law and to those whose, quote, consciences bear witness. uh, This idea of a natural law in the heart was very central to Stoic philosophy. So again, this would have been something they would have said, this guy's one of ours. Hey, we... We can, we can fellowship with this guy. This is, this is amazing. All right? Now, <laughs> just as quickly, though, we, he, Paul would, would often turn the tables. And so, let's talk about points of disagreement with Stoicism. Actually, look at that same passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Paul used the idea of God being visible, right? God being visible in creation, right? We can see his power and divine nature in the things that He has created. Then what does he say? So that they are without excuse, right? So Paul uses the idea of God being visible in creation to argue for human responsibility for sin. He also used the idea of the the fact that that a man has a, a human conscience to argue for human responsibility for sin. So for a Stoic, they were a sign of humanity's divinity, right? Again, the divine spark, right? Everybody's getting to participate in divinity and Paul says, "No, actually, that shows that you're responsible for your own sin. You are without excuse. This would have horrified Stoics, right? Can you imagine that they're kind of they're kind of following along, hook, line, and sinker? And uh, well, this this guy's making sense. Wait a minute, what did he say? Oh my goodness, right? So, secondly, in Philippians 4:13, he uses a, he uses a very popular a Stoic word, autarches, right, um, which means self sufficient." Paul learned learned to be content, right? He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I have, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul learned to be content in whatever situation. And again, this is very central for a, for a Stoic, right? Complete self-reliance in everything. But notice this, a Stoic's goal was to become totally self-reliant, detached from the world by using their inner divinity, right? A divine spark as a resource, Therefore, they claimed they could deal with whatever challenge, whatever difficulty that was presented to them. Paul says instead that his sufficiency doesn't come from within, from, with, from himself at least, but it comes from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So he's, he's taking away the confusion and he's keeping the offense where it needs to be about sin and relying on Christ. Isn't that interesting? I think this is fascinating. Um, and, you know, so I guess that's just one of us. Um, so, so not only did Paul, would Paul have learned uh, philosophy, he would have learned poetry, but he also would have learned rhetoric. Re- Paul, Levi's probably learning about rhetoric right now. The, the, the art of persuasive speech. This, is, this was huge in, in uh, Greek culture. Everyone was speaking, and you can see that. Uh, you see that in Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens and he, there are all these people that are preaching something new. They're proclaiming something new. First Corinthians, the whole thing about first Corinthians, you got this, uh, the whole town of Corinth was all about people coming in and preaching self-help sermons, essentially. And Everybody would applaud like, oh man, this guy, he's amazing. How you can be a, be a better you and your best life now. Some things never change. Amen. Amen. So they would applaud. Look at, he's such a great speaker. And then Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I didn't come to you with eloquent speech. Right? So, but in that, there's still, he's learning, he's learned some rhetorical, um, some, some uh, persuasive speech. So, uh, let's see, it was used in legislature, law, courts, public occasions, such as funerals. And Paul employed this method of speech in it a number of times in his speeches and acts. Paul didn't share the viewpoints of the Stoics, but he did hijack their methods and use them for the gospel. Isn't that that interesting? So, first, the first example would have been this thing called diatribe. Diatribe, diatribe would have been uh, something. um, It would be a manner to uh, kind of answer someone's questions before they ask their questions, right? So, to do do that, uh, it was developed by a group of philosophers called the Cynics. There you go. Someone who's cynical. It goes back to Cynic philosophy. Um, in their street preaching, it was later adopted by the Stoics. The method was to set up a, an imaginary dialogue partner. This is where the straw man argument comes from, right? This is all from Stoic philosophy. So, and and uh, if you want a good example of, of, of a diatribe, just read Romans. Almost all of Romans is uh, is a diatribe. You can see I've given you some examples: Romans three one through nine, Romans six one, six fifteen, seven seven, seven thirteen, nine fourteen, and nine nineteen. All those are different. He said, "But you know, should we sin then that grace may abound?" By no means. He's he's introducing this this other speaker to ask the questions. This is another way of Paul also showing. Um, do you remember who Paul was writing to in Romans? The church in Rome he's and so why is he writing to them he wants to get somewhere he wants to get to Spain he's getting ready for his next missionary journey do we do we know if he ever got to Spain we're not quite sure Um, but essentially he is he's writing a missionary support letter Romans get this Romans is a missionary support letter and so, as, as Paul is writing, he's, he's telling the church in Rome about the gospel that he's proclaimed. And he not only that he, that he knows the gospel well, but he knows the gospel so well, he knows where people are most likely to object. And so, they, so then he sets up this diatribe to, to show them, like, this is how I respond. Essentially because he needs their partnership in getting to, the, to, to Spain and to, to other places to, pro, to proclaim Christ where he has not been yet proclaimed. Um, so again, diatribe. So that's one example. Second, second example, moral lists. Moral lists. A major component of Stoic teaching was moral instruction. Again, why? To be self-sufficient, uh, to be completely self-reliant, and to live in harmony with all things, right? So and there would have been a lot of morals in, involved in that. So they would have used uh, list making as, as a way to teach. And so um, Paul does this in a, in, in a lot of places. Specifically, you can see it in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 23. He gives a vice list, uh, kind of a don't do this or that kind of thing in, in, in verses 19 through 21. And then a virtue list in verses 22 and 23. He also did this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. This is uh, where he's talking about the conduct of, of pastors and deacons. Um, overseers and deacons. Uh, and then in Colossians 3 verses 18 through chapter 4 verse 1, he gives instruction regarding the household, how the household is supposed to function. And so they're just, they're long lists of moral instruction. And so you, you may have wondered at, at, at some point, like, why? Why is this list here? Because it was a very common way of teaching. People would have looked for it. Kind of a case in point, um, in Korea, I, I, learned, I, I learned that I was talking with people wrong. You ever felt that way? Like you, you, you've ordered your, kind of your argument for something, you go to say something to somebody and it completely flies over their head because you're, you may be saying all the right things, but you're not saying it in the way that's going to be beneficial or helpful or convincing to that person. And so what I learned was that if, in, in order to make a convincing argument, I needed to not start with my main idea first, I needed to start, start with my supporting arguments and build my supporting arguments up to my main idea. Isn't that interesting? And so if I give my main idea first, people think, well, that's, that's a pretty big, small argument that you're making here. Where, where is he going next? And so I, then I would just kind of diminish my argument. And they're like, well, all, all right. Uh, what are you trying to say? I don't understand. So in the same way, Paul's giving these lists or he's doing these diatribes because they were, they were classic Commonly known ways to make his point. Everyone would have looked for that. It would have. It would have been like the first phrase of a song that everybody knows, and it's like, oh, they could finish. They could even finish the the rest of the song, you know, that kind of thing. They were looking for it, and it would have. It would have spoken convincingly, spoken powerfully, spoken effectively within that culture. All right. So then, kind of in closing tonight, I want to. I want us to look back at Acts chapter seventeen. You can. Uh, for the last thing tonight, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. So, what I want to do is I want to do a, a case study. I'm going to have the verses up on the up on the screen. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. And so, really, what I, I want us to just kind of quickly look through this passage, and I want us to see some of these different ideas kind of playing out in this situation. Paul Paul is in in Acts chapter 17 is in is in Athens. He's in Athens. He's just been to Berea, right? We know about our, our Berean class, right? Their testimony, right? The testimony of the Bereans is that they, they heard what Paul said and then they searched the scriptures for themselves to make sure that these things were so, right? So, departing from there, Paul goes on to Athens. Uh, Silas and Timothy, Silas and Timothy go somewhere else. And so, Paul sends word for them to come to meet him in Athens. And so, while he's waiting, this happens. You look there at, in Acts chapter seven, or chapter 17. Verse 16, starting there. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, again, who's them? Silas and Timothy. While he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. First of all, I want you to see this, friends. Paul was not perfect. But because he loved what Jesus loved and he hated what Jesus hated, he looked around and he saw these idols, statues that meant nothing. And people were giving their lives, everything they owned, pinning all their hopes on these statues that couldn't help them and couldn't even hear. And so his, his heart is provoked in him. And so what does he do? Verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and with the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. I want you to notice this. He goes where the, where the people are, right? He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because he's a Jew. And he speaks Greek, so Greek-speaking Jews—that's that's a great place for him to start. So he goes to the—he goes there. And yet, I want you to notice—if you look through Acts, most of the time where Paul goes into a town, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue, right? That's the—that's the, that's the best—the best step in for him, right? He is right there. So unless the Lord closes the door and puts him somewhere else, so um, so then where else? Where else does he go? He goes where the people are. He goes to the marketplace, right? Because not only are people buying and selling things, he was probably working there too. It was probably a way to support himself. But he's also, um, he also sees all these people and he has an opportunity to talk with them about the gospel. So, uh, so with all those who are present, verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some of them were saying, what, uh, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange divinities or strange deities. And I love where sometimes the Bible gives us a little step aside and tells us why, right? So look here, bottom half of verse 18. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What does that mean? This is where Greek comes in. So let me get a little Greek nerd with you for a second. So first of all, Greek, Jesus Yesu. Yesu is a masculine noun. You know, like some in some languages like Italian, Spanish, some others, that that you have most of your most of your nouns are either masculine nouns, feminine nouns, or neutral nouns. And so so what Paul has been doing here is in Greek, he's been proclaiming Jesus, masculine noun, and the resurrection, anastasis, which is a female fem a feminine noun. And so, they hear masculine word, feminine word. Oh, he must be preaching multiple polytheistic deities, right? Multiple gods. So, so in a situation that Paul didn't really foresee, he is, he's kind of, kind of gotten derailed on trying to share the gospel with them. So, watch what happens. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, um, saying... Um, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Thanks, Luke, for the, the clue in, right? So I want you to see this. Paul has, Paul has made a blunder here. But God has opened a door for the word. You hear this? God, even even though Paul's kind of made a misstep here, God is opening a door for the Word. These people want to hear more of what Paul's saying. So, now I want you to see this. Notice the change in Paul's language. And again, because he was well-versed in Greek, he could see what's happening. And also, honestly, because the Holy Spirit's working through him. He takes a step back and he changes his plan. So watch. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. God. Theos. One word. Okay? Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God... Who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people, life and breath and all things. Uh, And he made from one man, every nation uh, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, right? Their, uh, mankind, and the boundaries of their habitation. That they would seek God, again, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Verse 28, we talked about this earlier. Um, for in him we live and move and exist even as some of your own poets have said for we are also his children so he's he's using he's using greek poetry to proclaim the gospel um, and how there's there are little there are little threads that are hidden throughout the world and throughout cultures and if you can just tug at them at the right place then you see this beautiful thread that's forming the, proclaim the gospel. Verse 29. Being the children of God, we, uh, again, children of God, not think that the, the, the divine nature is like gold and silver and stone, an image formed by the art and, and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that, pe- that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which... He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof of, uh, to all men by raising who? Him, Jesus, from the dead. So, what was the change? He went from, pre- from talking about Jesus and the resurrection to talking about God. He uses one word, keeps it simple, and he drives home his point, right? And he even, he even alludes to Jesus, right? So, he's, he's proclaimed almost in the entirety of the gospel here. Um, Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall, hear more, uh, we shall hear you again concerning this. So, Paul went out from the midst. So, I want you to see this. Last verse. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So, I want you to see this. Paul, his, his, his soul is perplexed is stirred within him because he sees these people that are worshiping gods that cannot hear them. He proclaims the gospel. He makes mistakes in doing so. But the Lord helps him to understand where he's making his mistakes. He steps back. He changes his stance. And he goes again. Nothing is going to stop him from proclaiming the gospel. And so he does it. And so, is this? I mean, does he proclaim all the theological caveats of the of of, of giving the gospel? Not necessarily, but he is he is he's pro, he's pricked someone's heart here, right? And some, like we hear at other places in the New Testament, that the preaching of Christ is like a fragrance of death, leading to death, right? Those who don't know Christ don't want Christ, don't want to have anything to do with Christ. They're going to turn away and they're saying, they're sneering at him. But others saying, I want to hear more. Because the gospel for those who are being saved is a fragrance of life. And so he's proclaiming the gospel. Again, he makes mistakes. But the Lord uses it for his glory. And people come to know Christ. So, in conclusion, as we started out tonight, we said that our goal was to gain some background and some context on Paul. Really for two reasons. One, specifically in the book of Acts. Soon in the book of Acts, we're going to get to see Paul's life unfold. His missionary journeys unfold. And and with what we've learned tonight, I, I pray that we've been able to see all the more clearly how the Lord works. Works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul by no means was a spiritual superman. But we can see through Paul's time in Tarsus, the Lord was equipping him for ministry and he hadn't even trusted in Christ yet. God is intimately involved in every detail of your life. And I want you to think about this. God was involved with the fact, in the fact that, that his family at some point way before his own birth had been moved from Jerusalem, had been scattered way, way out to a place called Tarsus. And probably what was considered a a time of great hardship for his family. yet the Lord was using it for his purpose. So questions, questions with that. If the Lord works all things for our good and for his glory, as Romans Romans 8, 28, written by Paul says, then what does that mean for every moment of our lives up to this point? Shouldn't that shift the way that we view even the most difficult moments of our lives leading up to now? And with that then, how can you leverage your life for the greater progress of the gospel? Not, not just for, for Christians, to, to, for the gospel to advance in our own hearts, and the hearts of, the, of our brothers and sisters in our church, but also to advance in Callahan. To those, to those who have not heard the gospel, those who don't know Christ will hear and will believe. And not only here in our Jerusalem, but the, to the ends of the earth. How can you leverage your life for the spread of the gospel. Here and everywhere. Secondly. Generally we we this, this should benefit us as we read the Bible. The apostle Paul wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And the more we understand the author. The more we understand his content. Second. So our questions for this. How are you working to increase your understanding of the Bible? No one has arrived. The more I learn. The more I realize there is to learn. So, how are you working to increase your understanding of the Bible? And then secondly, how are you investing that wisdom that you've already learned into others? Let me, let, me make, let me make a caveat there. One, so are you increasing your understanding? Are you obeying that understanding? So many times we need to just obey what we've already heard. Amen? And then secondly, are you investing that? 2 Timothy 2.2, two Right? The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right? How are you investing the, the wealth of biblical knowledge that you've gained? The knowledge of the gospel. Invest it. How are you doing that? Any, any questions? Now that it's 739, I guess not, huh? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that... Uh, The more that we can study, the more that we study, the more that we see we need to understand. The more that we see we need to learn. And Father, yet in its basics, that the the, the gospel, the the Bible is is sufficient. I love that. That in reading the first time, we we can hear the gospel and trust in Christ and be saved. And yet for the rest of our lives, there's so much more to learn. So much wisdom to lean into. So much so many commands to hear and to obey. And so, Father, would you continue to grow us, make us more like Christ, increase our desire to know you better, not so that we would be big Bible heads walking around, but Father, that we would know you better, that we would love better what you love, and that we hate what you hate, and that we would give our lives to see the gospel move forward in our own hearts, in the hearts of our brothers and sisters around us. And Father, to the ends of the earth, Lord, you use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.